This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for music by a calligrapher and a violin repairman. Uh, We are going to start with some trivia. All right, Joe, this quiz is called Begin the Begin, and we've done something pretty similar, but all you got to do is just tell me the name of this famous album by its first line, its first lyric. So you want the album? Yeah, you can tell me the artist and the song if you if you want to show off, but I'm just looking for the looking for the album. Okay. <clears throat> the first one is, oh, I just don't know where to begin. I don't know. I'm starting off 0 for 1. What is that? It is Elvis Costello with Accidents Will Happen. The first first line off uh, Armed Forces. Wow, that's tough. Can you sing them? Sure. Okay, thank you. If I, if I, I will read them to you, and then if you can't get it, I will sing it. So Okay, I think that'll help. Oh, I just don't know where to begin. <laughs> oh, man, that would have been awesome. <laughs> that's my Elvis. Elvis C. My Elvis P is pretty gnarly, too. Your Elvis P, it's, is it yellow? <laughs> yes. Just a little. Uh, all right. Second one. Oh, I don't really want to die. I just want to die in your arms. Oh, I know this one. Um, and sing it. <laughs> oh, I don't really want to die. I just want to die in your arms. That is the Silver Jews. Yes. American Water? Uh, Natural Bridge. I get those two confused a lot. I do too. All right. Next one. You should get this one. I've got the style, but not the grace. That's Tom Waits meal variations. That's big in Japan. That is. Good job. Very good. All right. Next one. Our own correspondent is sorry to tell of an uneasy time that all is not well. Sing it. Our own correspondent is sorry to tell of an uneasy time that all is not well. What is it? I don't know. 
It is Rudders. The album is Pink Flag by Wire. Oh, the wow. Okay. Rudders. Okay. Yep. Good job on that, actually. That, that was a hard one to sing, but okay. Next one. It was the time of the preacher when the story began. Willie Nelson? Yes. What's the album? It is. Is, is it Redheaded Stranger? It is. Okay. It is. Very good. Very good. The song was Time of the Preacher. Okay. I don't believe in an interventionist God. Nick Cave, The Boatman's Call. Very good. That was my one to, to thank you. If you were if you were floundering, I was going to give was, you that one. That and the Tom Waits, I was very happy for. Thank you. You should get this one pretty easy too. The return of the thin white Duke throwing darts in lovers' eyes. That's David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Young Americans. It is station to station. station. Oh damn it! Okay. All right. Should have gotten that one. Next line. My smile is stuck. Sing it. My smile is stuck. Captain Beefheart. Mm-hmm. Safe as milk. Trout Mask Replica. Cannot go back to your frown land, Joe. Yeah, yeah, very good. This quiz is putting me in a frown land. Okay. I like it. Here we go. The whole place is dark. Every light on the side of the town. Go ahead and sing it. The whole place is dark. Every light on this side of the town. I don't know. What is it? I didn't sing it very well. That's the one you're going to say you didn't sing very well? Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. The whole place is... Was, nah, I can't do it. That was Magnolia Electric Company was the album by Songs of High. Oh, wow. And the song was Farewell Transmission. I am... Okay. I... All of the other ones, you have done a very good job. I didn't pick up on that from your singing. I'm sorry. No. All the other ones have been great. He's hard to he's hard to copy. I can sing this next one, though. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read it first, though. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom. All right, sing it. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom. <laughs> that is Leonard going on, your man. Very good at uh, Leonard Cohen, you know, the future and beyond. Yep. Okay. All right. Two more. That was a great Leonard Cohen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's my hit. If you're lonely, I will call. If you're poorly, I will send poetry. I don't even, I don't think you need to sing this one. Okay, that's fine. I'm, but, but I might change my mind here. This might take me a minute. Go ahead and sing it. If you are lonely, I will call. If you are poorly, I will send poetry. I love you. I am the milkman <laughs> of human kindness. I'm going to go with Billy Bragg on that. Very good. Life's a riot with Spy okay. vs. Spy. Okay. Yep. You're a much good. better singer than I. <laughs> I don't know. You kind of... Kind of turned that into a lounge tune, which is pretty good. That's all I have, yeah. Right. <laughs> Frightening lounge singer. <laughs> Private press guy. All right. Decide yourself if the radio is going to stay. Reason it could polish up the gray. Man, for some reason, I can't get Elvis Costello out of my head. It... <laughs> it's because of my impression. It's yeah. Like spot on. <laughs> it was very good. It's like Elvis Costello's cut. 
uh, co-hosting your podcast. Go ahead and sing that one. Okay. Oh, wait, 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 don't. It's R.E.M. Yep. Okay, yep. sorry. You got, got it. it. Yep. And that was Murmur. Uh, yep. The song was Radio Free Europe. Very good. You did pretty good. All right. It's time for the audio quiz. For my quiz, I'm going to play six clips. Now, for this, it's different than usual. The songs should be fairly well known for the most part, I think. But what I did was I converted them to MIDI. So they're oh going to they're very difficult. They be they have become <laughs> incredibly difficult, and I didn't realize this till I did it. So I'm gonna play them through. Okay. And when we go through the second time, I'm gonna give clues. Okay. That sounds fair. Okay. If you think if you think it's needed. Okay. I have clues prepared. That sounds dangerous. That's how little I think of our audience. They can't do it without clues. <laughs> how little you think of me, maybe. Yeah, that's, that might be the case. <laughs> okay, okay, play them. But here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. Track five. Track six. So, yeah, hard, right? What do you think? You motherfucker. Is it hard? Did you get any of them? <laughs> I got one. Okay. I think I got the last one. Okay. We're going to need those clues. I will I will add clues. Hopefully you're not just totally trolling me and our audience. <laughs> I feel like you might be gaslighting me. <laughs> it is. It's all it's all Frankie teardrops sped up and in midi form. <laughs> 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 
it's, a, it's metal machine music. That's right. <laughs> Speaking uh, of, great. you know what? You know what? It might be time for. What time is it? Turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Without exaggeration, the Velvet Underground are probably and easily, never mind probably, the most important band to Ryan and I. Other than some kid named Zimmerman from Minnesota, no one has had more of an influence than the Velvets throughout the music that we love. We've dissected and debated their music, theorized about the musical styles that were seeded by each of their albums, and made pilgrimages to New York to see Lou Reed scoff at audiences in only the way Lou could. I've gone to many concerts of his just hoping he would call me an asshole. (laughs) Today, we're going to continue our discourse on those beloved New York icons. We set out to settle a grudge match that likely only exists in our minds. We're going to settle once and for all who is the most essential, least essential member of the greatest band of all time. One who never recorded a single note with the band, or one who plays on more tracks than Kale and Nico combined. One who is unfairly maligned for his pop sensibilities and desire for fame, and one who is unfairly praised for his staunch experimentalism and anti-consumerist proclivities. One who was there at the onset, and one who witnessed the demise. Angus McLeese and Doug Ewell. The Cleese versus the Squeeze. <laughs> Angus McLeese was a man out of time. Or rather, he is a man who time had little sway over. And that is a peculiar mindset for percussionists. But it's kind of exactly what made him more than just a small Pete Best-esque side note in the history of Underground Rock's most storied band. Though most known as the enigmatic first drummer for the Velvet Underground, by the time he joined and then promptly quit the band, he'd already been an accomplished poet, book publisher, calligrapher, underground film actor, and musician. He'd been an integral part of the experimental avant-garde downtown scene as a member of Lamont Young's Theater of Eternal Music, and the neo-dada fluxus multidisciplinary and art movement. He was brushing shoulders and performing with John Cage and Yoko Ono. He'd been a prominent player in the underground music scene with its psychedelic drone flourishes, hypnotic pounding beats, and film and light shows years before Andy Warhol would mentor Lou Reed into plastic exploding inevitable fame. I think I already win. That was boring. (laughs) Doug Yule spent decades being ridiculed and or ignored by both fans and members of the Velvet Underground. The one album he is most infamous for, Squeeze, was a disaster. You're going to hear a lot of people and say that the album would be highly regarded were it not for being labeled a Velvet Underground album, and I used to be one, one of those people. Having spent the last couple of weeks listening to Squeeze over and over again and live versions of it from when they were touring, I am no longer that person. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say, I... I do think Doug Ewell's more essential, although still inessential, but that album is mediocre at best, regardless of whose name is attached to it. There are songs on it that are not terrible. That's about as good as it gets, though. Ewell, however, at this point, from interviews that that I've been reading, he does seem like a pretty grounded, self-aware guy, and he comes off like he's a pretty decent fella. 
He was always talented, and he learned a lot of instruments when he was a kid, which really helped. He was ready to fill in when, when the Velvet Underground needed him, and he, he was in the right place at the right time. Squeeze isn't just a mediocre Velvet Underground album. It would have been a mediocre Grateful Dead album. So, they're, but, but their fans think mediocre is great. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's like you cut a Twinkie in half, and then you cut that half end again, and you get the part without the cream filling. That's a Grateful Dead album. And then you cut it in half one more time, and that's Squeeze. Back to the more famous calligrapher. McLeese was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut on March 4th, 1938. He's the son of a book dealer, and he received some classical musical training on Latin drumming, jazz, medieval European dance, and freeform percussion. His style was so idiosyncratic, however, that most people just assumed he was self-taught. Sterling Morrison said that McLeese was the type of drummer who thought Keith Moon was just too tight of a drummer. It is said he never played anything resembling a steady beat. Drumming for McLeese was a ritual. It was a spiritual endeavor, like most aspects of his life. In the late 50s, McLeese moved to Paris with a poet friend and started Dead Language Press. The beatnik-focused publisher put out two of his early books of poetry. During this time, he also created an improvised freeform calligraphy style that resembled a Tibetan script. This handwriting would appear in his work throughout his career. He also published a pamphlet called Year, which lays out an alternative calendar with new names for all 365 days. There's Day of the Smoking Plain, Rose Over the Cities, Day of the Inner Lid, Day of Bessie Smith, The Fire is a Mirror, and Moke of the Shore. This count... <laughs> Come on. What? Nothing. Go. What is a moke? I don't know. I don't know what a moke is. But this guy is like what every internet commenter thinks Bernie Sanders is. <laughs> Bernie Sanders. <laughs> a moke. A moke in every pot. The fire is a mirror. <laughs> All right, keep going. <laughs> this calendar poem artwork presented a different way of thinking about everyday life and was used by some artists, I don't know which ones, but allegedly used by some artists to date their work. <laughs> His poetry also caught the attention of Lamont Young. In New York, Lamont Young was pioneering what he was calling dream music, a form of avant-garde drone music with loud amplification and, and discordant sustained notes with harmonics that would last for hours, slowly moving from one to the next by means of laws for allowable sequences that were established by Young. Intrigued by McLeese's surrealistic stream-of-consciousness poetry, Young invited the Young percussionist to play in his ensemble called The Dream Syndicate. Not the, you know, 80s L.A. band. Not the, not the good band. <laughs> Anyways, the old Dream Syndicate was eventually renamed the Theater of Eternal Music. McLeese's rhythms, primarily on hand drums like bongos and tablas, were rapid, sputtered, pressured, complex, and arrhythmic, were a perfect complement to the infinite ambient hums. Listen to The Fire is a Mirror, which is named after Special Day from McLeese's year calendar. <laughs> Midi one was weird. 
Doug Ewell moved to Boston from New York in 1965 when he started attending Boston University. See? Smart guy. Doug had been playing various instruments, as I mentioned before, since he was a kid. Piano, tuba, guitar, banjo, all kinds of stuff. He was really talented. Between 65 and 67, he played in Boston in a few cover bands, and then he joined a band called The Grass Menagerie. That's a good name. That's a great name, right? Uh, no, it isn't. The band included two other members who would end up joining Doug in the Velvet Underground in 1971 after Lou Reed left. Their names were Walter Powers and Willie Alexander. They might be the most least essential members of the Velvet <laughs> Underground, actually. <laughs> okay, go on. That's actually true. Why didn't we do that? <laughs> just, never mind. It's going to be the Walt versus the Willie. <laughs> Powers and Alexander had been part of the Boston music scene for, for a while, and they were in a well-known Boston garage band called The Lost, who crate diggers love the, their stuff. They're very hard to find, very good garage music. And they were even big enough for a while to tour with the Beach Boys, and they were signed to Capitol Records. The Lost was part of this totally ridiculous marketing campaign that attempted to build up the Boston music scene, calling it the Boss Town Sound, claiming it had better psych and garage bands than San Francisco. The ploy was drummed up by this promoter named Alan Lorber and made absolutely no sense at all. It was such a disaster that it ended up ruining bands that may have actually had a decent run without that horrible promotion. Lorber ran ads in prominent magazines like Rolling Stone, touting tales of bands who hadn't even had any full-length albums out yet, talking about how great they were. When the albums were actually released, they couldn't live up to the hype, and most of them just dissolved into various bar bands around the city. In a way, that story of those unfortunate Boston bands is a lot like Yule's life. He was sort of pushed into a situation that was unwinnable, and, well, more on that in a minute. So joining Young and McLeese in the theater of eternal music was a sullen Welsh viola player named John Cale. He'd been hanging around the same experimental downtown scene, and Mikhail McLeese eventually would kind of meet up and live in the same apartment building. McLeese would eventually quit uh, the music group as the rehearsal schedule and discipline required uh, just proved too much for him. His nomadic tendencies led him to leave for a trip to Europe and the Middle East in 1964, but back in the States, Cale was busy forging styles. Uh, he'd been introduced to a Pickwick songwriter who wasn't allowed to record his songs about heroin and sadomasochism, and so Kao saw this perfect opportunity to blend classical minimalist drone with the power of pop music through this kid named Lou Reed. Uh, Reed had recently recorded a crazy one-off dance hit parody song as a, a band called The Primitives. The song was called The Ostrich, and he recruited Kao to play shows promoting it. Here's a clip of that um, gem. Okay, I want everybody to settle down now. we got some new we're going to show you, man. So I'll knock you dead when we come upside your head. You get ready? You said here we go. Yeah, all right, come on. Come on. Come on, let's go. Yeah. All right. Everybody get down on your face, man. Get ready, yeah. Okay, come on. Hey, put your hands up. Oh, sign your knees, man. Feel the Amazingly enough, the dance craze, the ostrich, never took off. So Reed and Kale regrouped and they wanted to play some serious, darker music. K 
Kale brought McLeese, who'd moved back to the States, into the group, and Reed brought in his guitarist buddy, Sterling Morrison, who he knew from Syracuse. And so that was the initial lineup. At first, they called themselves the Warlocks, and then the Falling Spikes. Eventually, they settled on the Velvet Underground. It might be a legend, but the story is that it was Angus who coined the name the Velvet Underground after seeing a pulp paperback in Times Square. The alternative story is that Tony Conrad, who was another member of Theater of the Eternal Music and an uh, early friend of the band, well, he was the one who came up with the name after seeing the book On the Pavement in the Bowery. Anyways, McLeese and these prehistoric velvets would play improvised music for films. Uh, McLeese handled the percussion. He didn't use a drum kit. He used his, his hand drums, tablas, a cymbalum, or uh, tambourines. It's sort of difficult to judge the importance McLeese had on the early group. He was certainly more veteran in the art scene. He'd spent years working with experimental filmmakers and musicians. Kale describes that early music as kind of having a beat poetry quality, these interesting pitter and patter rhythmic patterns behind a drone. In reality, McLeese's short stint with the band was probably more influential than integral, as he was the link between beat poetry and Reed's lyrics, and between that Fluxus movement and Warhol's factories, between filmmakers and musicians, and between classical avant-garde music and underground rock. He bridged that gap and really helped forge those styles together. Now, if we move all the way up to 1969, Doug Ewell was living in an apartment in the same building that members of the Velvet Underground would use to crash after shows in Boston. He was also looking for a band, as the Glass Menagerie hadn't taken off and instead broke up. Prior to becoming a member of the Velvet Underground, Yule had only heard their music once at a show in Boston. Sterling Morrison had heard him play guitar more often than he had heard the Velvet Underground, and he had heard it because he had been at that apartment building where... Musicians were playing and practicing all the time. So Morrison knew him to be a competent guitarist. And when idiot Steve Sesnick hired him before even telling anyone in the band, Sterling Morrison wasn't too concerned about Ewell's abilities. Just to put how often the Velvet Underground was in Boston for shows into perspective, they played the Boston Tea Party 43 times between 1967 and 1970. During that same period, they played New York City three times. The band felt like they were, they were received better in Boston. The fans were better for them. It wasn't as much a, an event to be seen attending, but rather it was a concert where people were paying attention to the music, which the band kind of liked. It was something they weren't used to, and they, they grew to really, really respect that, and they liked playing Boston a lot. Did they not? I mean, could they just not get shows in New York, or did they just not want to play? Uh, they... They could get shows. They played a lot before Sesnick took over. After Reed fired Andy Warhol, Sesnick intentionally thought it would be better for the band overall to make it harder for New Yorkers to see them. I don't, he just thought it would make them more intriguing if they weren't playing in New York City as often. And I have no idea. This guy was insane. He's a horrible human hmm. being. So McLeese's wanderlust personality and fierce independence is pretty well documented. He's kind of described as this post-beatnik proto-hippie, and composer Terry Riley kind of called him, he's like a spontaneous, soft-spoken merrymaker that just had no sense at all about his own dark side. And so the band lamented his unwillingness to be restrained by a schedule. He wouldn't turn up at scheduled practices. He wouldn't turn up when they wanted to record. He'd just kind of come and go as he pleased. And he also did not care to be told when he should start and stop drumming. 
which if you're going to make pop songs, that's kind of important, I think. So this mentality made it almost impossible for him to function in the band with two pretty driven musicians like Reed and Kale both were. And indicative of this is he was absent from those famous Ludlow Street apartment demos, those early demos. Kale put it, he's a floater. He was a drifter chasing after his soul, and he lived on the Angus calendar. The day of Bessie Smith. <laughs> he had to go celebrate the day of Bessie Smith. When he said he lived on Angus calendar, he actually, he actually meant that. His shadowy legend is only deepened by how he left the band. Amazingly, Angus quit the band rather than getting fired for his unreliability, which I, I don't understand how they didn't fire him, but not one who wanted to be tied down by money or a clock, Angus refused to participate in the band's first paying gig, which was a no-name dance at a New York, New Jersey high school. Sterling Morrison remembers pleading with Angus to tell him this was not selling out because the band was pretty much starving at that point and they'd only stand to make $75. But nonetheless, McLeese had no interest in being paid to be told when to start and stop drumming, and he quit. And he left the band to begin a winding path of art and music and drugs that would carry him through the 70s. Him quitting also opened the door for Sterling Morrison to invite his former roommate's kid sister, who loved Bo Diddley and played drums standing up, to join the band. Mo Tucker joined in November 65, and the classic lineup for the first two albums was set. Now, I know we normally talk about this stuff after we go through all of this, but do mm -hmm. you have any idea what Lou Reed's impression was of Angus McLeese's attitude about time? We get to a point later where we talk about how he came comes back to the band, and mm -hmm. Lou Reed is, does not appear to be happy about it, but his style and personality, kind of like this freeform hippie, you know, just going to play. I, it doesn't make sense at all with Lou Reed. However, everybody that talks about McLeese says that he was, even though he was kind of out there, he had a, a real sense about him. He had some some artistic integrity. And he, you know, really was rubbing shoulders with some pretty prominent people that probably Lou liked who he knew. Lou Reed doesn't speak fondly of him, but he doesn't speak really nasty of him either from what I could see, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just curious. I think Kale probably really vouched for him and advocated for him. Okay. I mean, we're talking just, it was months. He wasn't there very long. Right. Right. You know, they only lasted five years and he quit by November 65. By 1968, Lou Reed had fired Andy Warhol as a band's manager, saying in an interview in 1989, I'd never seen Andy angry, but I did that day. The person who replaced him, who we've mentioned a couple times now, was named Steve Sesnick who it, in interviews after by both Kale and Lou Reed has been referred to as a snake multiple times. Sesnick did more to break up the band and tarnish its legacy than anyone who was ever actually in the band, though he also counted himself as a member of the band too. Sesnick takes credit for even more than that. In an interview with Victor Brockris, Sesnick says that the entire idea of that exploding plastic inevitable was his, that he gave the idea to Warhol. He also claims that the third Velvet Underground album's quieter, more religious-leaning material was his idea, too. It was all based on his recent reevaluation of his own beliefs. He claimed to have that much control over Lou Reed. Unless his name was Rachel. That's not true. <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep cut right there. He also claimed that he was part owner of the Boston Tea Party. He absolutely was not. He said that he had no knowledge of Brian Epstein's attempts to manage the, the Velvet Underground and to try to send them on a European tour. But he did. There's proof that he knew about it, 
and he hid it from the band. So wait, Epstein tried to recruit the Velvets to go to Europe? So Brian Epstein was trying to manage the band. He wanted to kind of spread out and not be known for the one thing that he was known for, which is obvious. And apparently somebody gave him a copy of the Velvet Underground and Nico. And he even told Lou Reed this one time. It was a story from Lou Reed's point of view. But he said that someone gave me a copy of your album and my lover and I went to the, the Caribbean or something. And all we had was that album. And we rented a turntable and we just played that album every day we were there. And it only reminds me of great times. And he loved it. And he wanted to manage the band. His plan was he was talking to Sesnick about getting to be the manager of the band. And he wanted to send them on a big European tour. And Sesnick just very quietly stopped it. So Brian Epstein was Hmm. in contact with Lou Reed, Sterling Morrison. I didn't find any information about Kale, but I need to read that his autobiography. There might be something in there. He had made attempts to potentially manage the Velvet Underground. Maybe it's not quite as aggressive as as I'm making it sound, but he did. And then Sesnick lied about it. Crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. It was also Steve Sesnick who spread discord throughout the band to maintain control of the band. Yule had this to say about him. He said, I would be told by him that I was better than Lou and that the others were not really my friends. (laughs) It's crazy. And he would do that to everybody. He would just talk to Lou Reed about how great he was all the time. And I mean, Lou Reed didn't need that. He already thought that. But he would split him up from the band. He knew that the band members didn't really communicate well with each other. What we know for sure, based on interviews from those within the band and those around them, is that it was Sesnick who pressured the firing of John Cale because he was harder to control. Sesnick and Reed wanted a more mainstream sound, and John Cale absolutely did not. Cale had even suggested that for their next album, the amps be placed underwater. (laughs) Cale was the easiest to get rid of. (laughs) because there was already tension between Cale and Reed, and it was that tension that Sterling Morrison and millions of others credit for providing the sound that the band was most known for. Cale was easiest to get rid of because he electrocuted himself. His <laughs> <amps> underwater. <laughs> it was also Steve Sesnick who suggested to the band that Doug Yule replace John Cale within days of having Cale fired. Though Sesnick later denied even ha- even knowing who Yule was. It's weird because you have this image that Lou was such like a controlling figure. It seems like there were times when he was very easily charmed and then sort yeah. of twisted. I don't know. It, there's so much going on in Lou's head. It turned out that, you know, Yule actually is a pretty good hire as it, as it goes. Like what is it able, able to do and fill in for... Yeah, he was a good. Kale. It was a good foil for Reed on one of the albums, and yeah, it was. Yeah. It worked. It ended up working pretty well because he's more essential than Angus. I just wait till you hear this next story before you make any judgments out there. That happened in in 1969, and 1969 became the year that ended up defining Doug Ewell and every single thing he's ever done since. So, as we mentioned before, interesting side note: McLeese did rejoin the Velvet Underground one more time in 1966 for a five-day run of the Plastic Exploding Inevitable performances at Poor Richards in Chicago. Reed was in the hospital with hepatitis, so Cale took over on vocals and organs, Mo Tucker moved to bass, and McLeese drummed. But in true Angus form, he showed up half an hour late to one performance. But, to make amends, I guess, he drummed an extra half hour after everybody had stopped playing. So... <laughs> Just to make sure we're all square. McLeese at that time was very interested in rejoining the band. 
who by now had gained quite a reputation and some prominence. And I guess he wasn't so worried about playing, you know, for money anymore. But um, Reed was absolutely having none of that. He was not going to have McLeese back in. And as soon as he got back, McLeese was gone. McLeese didn't sit idly by, though. As the band he quit grew to a legendary status in a short period of time, he was always doing something. He collaborated with artists and musicians and filmmakers continually, including Tony Conrad, Terry Riley, Ira Cohen, Yoko Ono, Gerard Malanga, and just lots of other important names in that New York scene. In 67, he moved to Berkeley and joined a street troupe named the Flying Lotus Magic Opera Company. And that's where he met painter and illustrator Hetty McGee. And they were married by Timothy Leary at Golden Gate Park. Sometime in the future, I think in Tibet, they had a son who they named Ossian Kennard McLeese. He ended up being recognized by a Buddhist holy man, Rangjung Rigpe Dorje, as a reincarnation of a Tibetan saint. And at the age of four, that boy was declared a Buddhist monk. So he's got that going for him. Now, Lou Reed was pretty okay with Doug's hire. Doug Ewell was a Pisces. So was John Cale. Lou Reed was very appreciative that that balance would be maintained. <laughs> this, that was true. Also, Doug Ewell looked a lot like Lou Reed. And Lou Reed loved that. Because that way he could look at himself more and more and more. He would also introduce Doug as his little brother. Ewell had never played electric bass when he was hired. Uh, he hadn't played bass at all but that didn't matter. He was hired three days before the Velvet Under Underground's next gig, and he and Lou Reed spent that entire time getting him up to speed learning 30 Velvet Underground songs. Now, in the bootlegs from that weekend's shows, his first attempts at being in the band, you can hear him trying to keep up with Reed and Morrison, but you also get a sense that they were trying to test him by making changes at unusual times, speeding up, slowing down, and all around just doing things differently than they'd been practicing. But overall, he played well, and he got a lot better from there. Other than the viola, Yule could play everything Kale could play, and his string arrangement on Ocean is often credited to Kale because it's so great. The band quickly started recording their third Velvet Underground album less than a month after Yule was hired, and Yule was charged with singing some of the songs. Now, there's conflicting memories as to why this happened. On Candy says... Reed and Yule agree that it was Lou's idea. Doug, optimistically so, but Lou has a much more condescending memory. He says, I was working with Doug's innocence. I'm sure he never understood a word of what he was singing. He doesn't know what, it, what it's about. I mean, I thought that was so cute. I adore people that are like that. They're so cute, you know? That's, that's my best Lou Reed. The album worked out really well, and Yule became like a little lapdog for Reed, following him around and doing whatever he asked. Mo Tucker thought, that that sort of pissed off Lou as much as it flattered him. That said, Yule was playing better and better live. It's his guitar work that really shines on that live 1969 album, which is what I consider to be the best live album of all time. It's really impressive, especially if you listen to What Goes On. That's him. He's, he just does an amazing job on that. Yeah, that is that, and that is a great version of that song.
The McLeese uh, weirdness continues. On the way back to New York, they rode with Loud and Wainwright III, and they were arrested in Oklahoma for cannabis possession. While Wainwright's family was able to bail him out immediately, it took a lot longer for the McLeeses, and eventually his friends back in New York had to throw a multimedia benefit concert to raise money enough to bail him out. He then, once he got back to New York, he started performing music with a group called the Universal Mutant Repertory Company. And that included a series of pretty famous events at New York's St. Mark's Church in 1970 called Epiphanies. Ira Cohen made a film about those shows in that time that was called Invasion of Thunderbolt Pagoda. And the soundtrack to that was released at some point. And that's a pretty good example of the type of style they're playing. So I'm going to play a clip of that if you promise not to freak out. Here you go. Also during this time, he spent time working on a script for a film version of Aleister Crowley's Diary of a Drug Fiend, and he was working on a way to somehow combine Tibetan mysticism into his drone music. Angus and his wife appear randomly dancing in the Woodstock concert film, and the McLeases traveled to Canada, France, Greece, India, and they finally settle in Nepal. The majority of the 70s was spent in Kathmandu, McLeese met with a group of foreigners who were making Tibetan woodblock prints to sell to tourists to form a poetry community, and it was called, and eventually a bookstore called the Spirit Catcher Bookstore. Most of the poetry that was published was on this handmade rice paper that was had plant matter and mica and insects in it, and toward the end of his life, he was trying to form a paper company to sell that sort of paper. But he'd had years of hard drug use and had really taken its toll by that point. He never particularly seemed concerned whether he'd live tomorrow or not. He just, he was in the moment. That was just who he was. Uh, But he did do a a lot of drugs. And in June 79, he died from malnutrition related to his drug use. He basically starved himself to death. He was cremated in a funeral pyre in the tradition of Tibetan Buddhists in Kathmandu. And by all accounts, he remained a remote and unknowable figure all the way up until the end. Where's Dougie Yule? Uh, dead, I hope. <gasps> Whoa! I went to high school with Dougie Yule. You can't say that. Well, I can say it, but I didn't mean it. Uh, you worked together on uh, on the Loaded album. Yeah, I, well, we worked on the Loaded album. And that was that was the final venture. That, w- that was it. By the time Loaded was being recorded, it was basically all Lou Reed and Doug Yule. Sterling Morrison, um, he says that he came in, played what they asked him to play, and left. He had very little do to do with creating the songs at all. Sesnick had talked Lou into focusing on singles and wanted this album to be, well, loaded with hits, hence the name. The recording sessions produced enough material for a double album that would have been at least as good, and that's all because of Lou Reed and Doug Yule. Lou wrote the songs. Doug contributed bass, keyboards, drums, lead guitar, vocals, and really shined as a compliment to Lou. Mo Tucker was not on that album. And that's something that Doug Ewell regrets to this day, not um, not having 
the band wait for her to record the album. He feels really bad about that even still. Now, Doug sang lead on a few tracks on the album, and he says it was an intentional decision on Lou's part, just because his voice sounded so nice. Sterling Morrison remembers it a little differently. He talks about Lou having a voice that would very quickly get strained, so he couldn't really sing for multiple nights for concerts very often for three nights, and his voice would be shot. So by the time he recorded, or when they were in the studio recording Loaded, they had just finished a bunch of nights playing live. So Lou's voice was terrible, and it needed some rest. I mean, this is very clear. If you listen to the outtakes from the album, his voice just sounds like it is just about gone, like he's just about lost it. Either way, Doug does a great job sounding like Lou Reed. He doesn't sound anywhere near as meek and innocent and naive as he did on Candy Says, which was perfect for that song. He does a great job being Lou Reed on these songs. It's hard to even know at times whether it's Lou Reed singing or Doug Ewell. Because Mo Tucker wasn't around, when they started touring or playing around at that time, um, it was often Doug's little brother, who was 16, his name was Billy, who would play drums for them. And you can hear him on Max's Kansas City Live album. He does a very amphetamine-driven set. He plays very fast, but <laughs> it's good. He, he does a good job. After the album was released, Lou Reed just walked away. He quit. He didn't like the direction Sesnick was taking the band. He was disappointed with Atlantic Records because they failed to promote the, the album like they'd promised. From that moment on, the band was all Doug's. Steve Sesnick <laughs> talked him up and had him tour with his old buddies, Powers and Alexander, and Mo Tucker. So the band with Mo Tucker and Powers and Alexander, they toured Europe. Sesnick also convinced Yule to record an album as the Velvet Underground. But instead of having all four of them record, the four that had been playing the songs live, he actually had Alexander, Powers, and Mo Tucker flown back to New York. He kept Yule there, and he had one guy who ended up being in Deep Purple. They recorded all of Squeeze. Yule did just about everything on it. Here's what Yule says of that album. I take it you've heard that album. Sorry, I apologize. The Squeeze album is an extension of the same situation with Loaded, and it's one of the reasons why I'm just happy that it's not easily accessible, because I'm not proud of how easily I was influenced by Sesnick. Doug Ewell was not invited to the 1993 Velvet Underground reunion concerts. The only member of the band who even expressed any interest in his attendance at all was Sterling Morrison, and for him it was simply to lighten his load playing songs. Neither was Ewell mentioned when the band was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Honestly, if Squeeze hadn't been made, I suspect he would have been at both of those things. That's how upset Lou Reed and John Cale were, and those, those are the lengths that those two will go to to maintain a grudge. Doug Ewell now lives in the Pacific Northwest, and he runs a business building and repairing cellos, violins, and even violas. Both McLeese and Ewells ended up being outcast to their own band. McLeese seemed to work well enough with Cale, and just as Ewell seemed to play fine with Lou, almost like a protege. But in the end, you can't escape the irony that a band so praised for being outside the norm was so willing to reject those who didn't fit with their ideals. And while it's true that history is written by the winners, it doesn't mean that the losers don't have a story to tell as well. Now, have you listened to the Squeeze album recently? I have. I, ha I had not listened to it before this. It's just like a boring 70s record. It really is. I feel bad because I think Doug Yule was talented. 
He wasn't John Cale. He wasn't Lou Reed. He wasn't even Sterling Morrison. Nope. But like, you know, you're not going to be. He's a, a rhythm guitarist who has a nice voice and is a pretty talented musician. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he just gets blasted for using that name, you know, and I guess it's the price he pays, but he doesn't deserve to be written out of all of Velvet Underground history. Like we said at the beginning, he played on more tracks than John Cale because they basically had a lost album there in between mm-hmm. uh, VU and, and Loaded. He, his fingerprints are all over that too. So... I don't know. I do feel for Doug Yule. He seems like a real reasonable person. The interviews I've read post, you know, in his reflection, he he seems to be real balanced about the whole thing. He does. He seems very reflective. He seems to recognize what what his weaknesses were at the time, being manipulated by Sesnick, being just too greedy at the time and not understanding. I just don't think he was smart enough to know what was quite going on. Whereas I think the difference for me between McLeese and Yule is one of them was super intelligent but really lazy. One of them was, at best, of average intelligence, but worked really, really hard. I don't know if I'd say McLeese was lazy. I'm sure he was, but he just wasn't there. He did stay after 30 minutes and play on his own. So yeah, right. that's, that was pretty you awful. know, how often do you do that when you yeah. show up late to work? You know? That's true. <laughs> he is just a different sort of character. He just had no, he, he just never was going to be able to be in a band. And, like, I think, like, just how he kind of floated in and was in the Velvet Underground for a second and then floated out, it almost like people elevate him up where he really should be elevated up because he was making some weird experimental electronic music type stuff way before it was a cool thing to do. But he was never the person like leading the charge. He was just kind of, he just kind of floated through. He and his wife are pretty, especially for the kind of later stuff, like the stuff he did in the 70s, like people who are really into the underground, kind of the drone and the psychedelic, more freeform stuff. I mean, he's really well regarded by those people who are into that. And I'm going to talk more about his kind of output of music in a minute when I play a song of his. But he's just makes the Velvet Underground more interesting. I don't know if he makes him better or not. Do you know of a good biography on him specifically? I've read some on Lou Reed. I've read some on the Velvet Underground, but not on his. I didn't know anything about him after 1965. I don't think there's biography. There's like art books and stuff like that. Buhara is putting out a lot of his like poetry and art and music in kind of waves. Basically what happened, and I'm going into a little bit of what I was going to talk about when I played with the song, is he left behind like a hundred reels of tape and all sorts of art and prints and his calligraphy stuff. They talk about his calligraphy all the time, which it is is—it is beautiful. He is a very good artist. But eventually, Hedy McLeese bequeathed her collection of the tapes to Yale. And so Yale has all these tapes, and then they've had some collectors who bring stuff because anything he put out was in such small, home-recorded type stuff that it's, I mean, there's there nothing commercial put out by him ever. But Buhara, which is this New York art society, they mostly do art books and some music and different sorts of stuff. And that's the record I have that I'll play in a minute called Dream Weapon. It's these archival recordings. And they're very interesting. And I think people really respect him. He's, he's If you view him as more of an artist than like a rock and roll musician, it makes a little bit more sense. He's basically an artist who just happened to float into the Velvet Underground for a second and then float off. 
he he was influential on that sound, but he was more influential on like emerging scenes than the actual music. That's my half-hearted plug for McLeese. Okay, is uh, over over Yule. <laughs> now for uh, the album Squeeze, that one as far as collectability is pretty hard to come by. Has it been reissued? So Polydor UK owns the rights to it, and they refuse to put it out. They want to just sort of pretend it doesn't exist. Really? People have tried over and over to contact them and get it reissued, and they will not do it, which Doug Ewell is happy about. He said that he doesn't want people to have access to that album. He doesn't like it. The copy that I have even, and this will be obviously posted like we always do, I had to get a copy off of Discogs when I saw one come through where the the cover was just torn to shreds like by a cat. <laughs> but but the album itself, the vinyl, is VG+. Plus. sounds great. How much How much does the record go for? Did you look? So right now... On Discogs, it says that there are 49 for sale. The medium price is twenty six sixty five. Okay. Yeah, so not bad. But it's more for a piece of history than actually what you probably listen to too exactly. often. Exactly. Yep. And the cover art looks like a copy of Loaded, which was intentional. Absolutely. Just, yeah. yeah. And yeah, the album just isn't really very good. Can you think of any other cases where a band member who wasn't very prominent took over a band name and just went with it? No, I don't think I can think of anything like that. That would be like Billy Preston taking over the Beatles and releasing an right. album with nobody else in the band. <laughs> he just called the Beatles. He's. I would rather hear an album by him. His albums are better than Doug Yule's. But I mean, Doug Yule. I mean, he was a real member. I mean, it's it's just a it's just a weird situation. It's, the Velvet Underground are just a, they are really a fascinating band. Every member is is very interesting. You know, I still I still love them. I think it's I've listened to them so much I don't always go back to them as often as I should, but like they are a fascinating band. And now that they're so put on such a pedestal, it was kind of fun to do this to kind of see some of the human edges cuz even Lou Reed in in how his personality and John Cale to some extent too, they still you know, they're they're mythological in their in their mercurial ways or whatever, mm-hmm. but like it's it's kind of fun to think Lou Reed got pushed around by a manager and, you know, John Cale, you know, got butt hurt by something. You know, you know, it's just it's. So that clip I played where it's Lou Reed saying when he was asked about Doug Ewell and he said something awful. That was 1972. Just just so everybody knows, Doug Ewell then played a, a tour with Lou Reed as one of his he played guitar <laughs> for him. So Lou Reed could change his mind about things very quickly. He had some yeah. He had some issues mentally, obviously. Doug Ewell even at one point said that he was invited to an art gallery in New York for for an opening, and he and Lou Reed was going to be there too, and he was very very nervous about it. This was probably in the nineties, maybe two thousands, somewhere. Uh, it was before Lou Reed died, um, but anyway, uh, Doug Ewell was very nervous at the opening, and when. He saw Lou Reed, and Lou Reed saw him. Lou Reed walked right up to him and gave him a huge hug. And it was like the biggest relief for Doug Ewell, like, ever. He felt so great. He said that Lou Reed has changed so much by that point. He was so calm. Um, you could tell he had really kind of matured in a lot of ways mentally. I thought you were going to say he gave him a big hug and then told him to go load his, his gear. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Doug, get your shine box. <laughs> I, w- I will say it was absolutely wrong. They didn't invite him to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. I will say that. Let's go. That's yeah. very petty at that point, I think. But When I was living in New York in 2001, 
I would go into other music a lot, even though I couldn't afford to, just to look at things. And they had a box set of, it was called, I think it was called After VU. It was all bootlegs. It was four CDs of bootlegs uh, from live recordings of The Velvet Underground with Doug Ewell, Alexander Powers, and Tucker playing in, huh. playing in Europe. And I did, I did find a copy of that. I could, didn't get it then. I didn't realize at the time that it was going to be something that would be taken off the shelves very quickly. But I, I found a copy of it. I borrowed it from the internet, and I've listened to it, and it sounds okay. It just sounds like a cover band, a Velvet Underground cover band playing Europe. They sound, mm. they sound good. Did you hear about their Christmas show? Yuletide. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're going to leave that low-hanging fruit, Joe. So who wins? Is it the Cleese or the Squeeze? I think even you made your own case for Doug Ewell being more important. Yeah. I think I, I think mean, he is. It's a hard thing to argue. He did a lot on Loaded. He sang Candy Says. Uh, that right there is better than anything McLeese did in the Velvet Underground. Well, and the the fact that he did a lot of the instrumentation on Loaded, which is great. I'll, I would go Ewell. Okay, I'm going to call it a draw. So I think we've um, we've called a tie, and that means we'll go to music. Continue from where we left off. I'm going to play a song from Squeeze. There are a couple songs on there that I don't dislike. I don't know how often I'd go play them, but here's one, and it's called Dopey Joe.
Dopey Joe from the Velvet Underground album Squeeze, released in 1972. It really, we've talked so much about this, this album. It's, it's an okay song. Let it stand on its own. Yeah, it's one of the better songs on its on the album. Um, I like that Little Jack song is good. I think Dopey Joe yeah. is good. They're decent. There are a couple other songs that are about that good. I hope that you guys enjoyed hearing it. It's not something I think you get a chance to hear very often, a uh, song from that album. So I'm not really going to go into much on that. Uh, there is one cool quote. It's Doug Ewell talking about making Squeeze. And this actually makes it sound like it could have been a better album. Mm-hmm. He said in an interview, he said, I... I remember sitting on a plane writing extensive notes on the mixing of the album, which is something he was good at. I sent it to Steve Sesnick, and none of my suggestions were taken. I'm sure he didn't even read it. He mixed it for the best possible commercial success. It's really embarrassing. I gave what I had at the time. There are parts of it I hate and parts of it I don't hate. But if I had to do it over again, it would be a completely different album with different people and have nothing to do with Steve Sesnick. So it could have, maybe it could have been yeah. a more, it would have been a more interesting album, I think. If it had had Mo yeah. Tucker on it, even that alone, her drumming would, was clearly not on that album. One other thing that I didn't mention was in 1972, I think it was, mm-hmm. it was, bef- well, it might have been 71. It was after Lou Reed left the Velvet Underground. But before David Bowie, before Transformer even came close, David Bowie saw the Velvet Underground, the Doug Yule-led Velvet Underground, and went up and talked to Doug Yule as if he was Lou Reed for like 10 minutes, not having any idea it wasn't Lou Reed. Wait, say that again? David Bowie went to a Velvet Underground concert at the time that it was Doug Yule's Velvet Underground. And after the show, he talked, he went up and talked to Doug Yule thinking it was Lou Reed because he'd never met him and he'd been a big fan and he talked to him for about 10 minutes just convinced he was Lou Reed. It's pretty great. Is that real? Yes, it that is. That doesn't seem real. It is real. It's it's a fact. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it is real though. I do. It, it comes up. just so drugged know. up? Like there's, I don't know. There's pictures of Lou Reed. They don't look that close. And like if you listen to the music, like there's no... I don't know. Maybe he was just messed up. If you listen to those those live recordings, they were doing a very good cover of the Velvet Underground. Did they do like Sweet Jane and other songs, or was it just they almost exclusively did Velvet Underground songs, not Squeeze songs? Really? Yeah. Well, that is interesting. All right, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna talk a lot about this either. This is Angus McLeese and Tony Conrad, and the name of the song is Druid's Leafy Nest. The druid's leafy nests take one. Nest.
uh, Druid's Leafy Nest by Angus McLeese. That's off Dream Weapon 3, which is one of those boo hurrah releases I was talking about. It was 2011. I will say it is not something I'm going to listen to a lot. I kind of see it more as like an art piece, and but the, it has one of the coolest and best-looking covers I'll put it on the website. It's just a beautiful cover. Um, and it's interesting music. It's difficult to kind of fully grasp probably what he was doing with music because it's so sporadic and so much of it was unpublished and it was just listless. I wanted to kind of give you an idea of what the sound was. And this is something that was recorded probably around 68 or 69. So you're talking about this is contemporary with White Light, White Heat, third album. And and there's a lot of the same sort of elements going on. So there's definitely a style. The Dream Weapon exhibit uh, was in 2011. And they issued four records. This is the third. This is from the third volume. Where did, how did you get it? Discogs, I think. Okay. I got very interested in McLeese for a while. Originally, the the idea was to just me do a show on McLeese, and I said, I don't think there's enough. And then you said, oh, I want to do a show on Squeeze, and we kind of put put the ideas together. And I think it works really well. There's there's a lot of parallels between the two of them. It's like bookending a story that where the, the middle section everybody seems to know. Exactly. It's like we take out the most famous part of of the velvet underground Most interesting part <laughs> yes we just talk about the humble beginnings and the horrible end uh, <laughs> and you know like i said as, as part of the story it needs to be told okay my second song is vu adjacent Two. this is elliot murphy and the name of the song is last of the rock stars <laughs>
All right, that was Last of the Rock Stars by a guy named Elliot Murphy. It came out on Polydor 1973 on an album called Aqua Show. And this is a very serendipitous find. This is the last record I bought. I bought it at a record store that was very reissue forward and very expensive, but they did have a dollar bin. And so I looked through the dollar bin and I saw this weird looking record that I thought might be a glam record. And so I was like, well, I'll try it for a dollar. You know, just I'm always looking for kind of weird stuff. And it looked good. It was from 73 and I hadn't heard it. So I thought, well, you know, it could be really bad or it could be good. It was not a glam record. It was sort of singer songwriter. It sounds a lot like Bruce Springsteen to me. Uh, But this Elliot Murphy guy is kind of an interesting guy. He was born in Long Island and he was a journalist and writer primarily before he got his record contract. He moved to France for a while and he busked in a French subway station and had a couple small roles in Fellini movies or had a small role in the Fellini movie Roma. I think maybe a couple different French movies. So when he got back to the States, he formed a band. He had a little bit of cred, I guess, from being in the Fellini movies. The band was called Aqua Show, and his dad had a, owned an Aqua Show, which was a water ballet arena on the grounds of the World's Fair in 39 and 64. And so he played all the hot spots, Max's Kansas City, Mercer Art Center, and he kind of became associated with the art rock scene, like Patti Smith or the New York Dolls. He eventually got a label and released a record that had really good critical praise. There's some that said he kind of got thrown in that new Dylan tag, uh, right along with Bruce Springsteen. One review said it was like the blonde on blonde sound with the lyrics of Lou Reed, which it is not that good. Um, <laughs> n- nothing could be that good. But I see where the reviewer was going because it does kind of have a blonde on blonde sound and his lyrics are kind of Lou Reed-ish, but it's not nothing that great. It is good, though. And so he, for somebody that Joe and I had never heard of, he'd worked with a lot of people. He worked with Doug Ewell. He worked with Springsteen, the Violent Femmes, Jerry Harrison, the Talking Heads. He worked with Phil Collins, and he worked with Joe's personal hero, Billy Joel. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the cool the cool thing about how this works is because I was like, I might, I might have played a song at some point anyways, but I started reading up on him, and he has a lot of connection to the VU. First of all, he was kind of like a super fan, and he got asked to write the notes for that live album that Joe mentioned earlier, VU Live 1969, which is one of the greatest live albums, if not the greatest live album. And so he's got the lyric, the, the liner notes are really, I remember them. Like as soon as I read them, I remember reading them from my record. They start, it's 100 years from now, and everyone who is reading this is dead, which is a great start for liner notes. So. He was the guy who wrote those liner notes. He's got a few good Lou Reed stories. I'm going to just kind of read a quote from him. Sometimes Lou was very supportive. Other times, let's say, distant. I met Lou when I wrote the liner notes, uh, blah, blah, blah. He telephoned my mother looking for me to thank me. She told him that I would be very happy to hear he called. And then Lou asked why. She said, because he's a great admirer of yours. To which Lou responded, isn't everybody? That's so great. Talk to some dude's mom. And apparently they had a bit of a falling out because Lou really kind of took him under his wing and wanted to kind of groom him and helped him out a lot. And he wanted to produce his first record, but that didn't happen. This is not a Lou Reed produced record, which is really unfortunate because it could have been really good. So Lou was mad at him. But as we said, Lou can kind of go back and forth. And apparently he tried to call him uh, several years later in Paris 
And um, somebody, <laughs> I guess the guy who answered mistook him for a priest, and Lou got really mad and hung up. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's weird stories. Yeah. Anyways, I thought it fit perfect for the Velvet Underground show. And it, like I said, I didn't mean to, but I that was the last record I bought a couple weeks ago. And it was a $1 record. And I really like the song. It sounds kind of Bruce Springsteen in, but it's got pretty good lyrics and kind of fun. It's got some Dylan harmonica. It's worth a listen. For the last song tonight, I'm going to play a song also Velvet Underground related. It is called Tugboat, and it is by Galaxy 500.
right, that was Galaxy 500 with a song called Tugboat from their album Today. It's the last song on that album from 1988. And I have it on Shimmy Disc Records, who I mention a lot. I've mentioned Shimmy Disc way too many times, I think. But I, I really like what they've done. Tugboat was actually sort of a little bit of a tribute to Sterling Morrison. It's because Morrison, in the early 70s, after he left the Velvet Underground, he started working in Houston on tugboats as like a deckhand just to get some more money in because he didn't have any money coming in. And he ended up doing that for a while, and he ended up becoming a master mariner and and the captain of a tugboat, which he ended up doing through kind of throughout the 80s until he ended until he went back and got his Ph.D. from uh, University of Texas mm-hmm. in medieval literature, which sounds kind of cool. Uh, anyway, he was uh, so the song is about a tugboat captain who's just kind of kind of getting away from everything, I think. And it's Galaxy 500 who were very much Velvet Underground influenced. But anyway, when Sterling Morrison, he's, he has a good story about how he left the Velvet Underground. The last show he played in with them was in Houston, and it was in on August 21st of 1971. And when the band was getting ready to head back to New York, Morrison got a suitcase, filled it with absolutely nothing, went with the band to the airport, and got them all, went all the way to the gate with them like it was nothing, like he was perfectly fine. <laughs> and then he said, I'm staying, and he walked away. so i think he probably based on that i would assume he even checked his suitcase an empty one but i don't know that for sure i like that ending and then they never saw him again he's that one member of the band you just kind of you just kind of love yeah he ended up playing with lou reed on some albums john kale he played with mo tucker on mostly mo tucker and became part of her touring band for a while too great great guitarist seems like a great dude Yep, and yep, all that is a guy. great song by a great band. Yeah, it's not one of the rarer songs that I try to usually play, so I feel a little bit bad about that, but it's a wonderful song. Well, it's kind of how I felt by, like, Drunk by Noon or something like that. Like, it may not be rare, but if somebody's never heard that and then maybe they hear it from listening to this podcast, that's what it's all about, because that song is it is that good where it could be somebody's favorite song they've never heard. All right, let's, uh, let's damage some eardrums. So here we're going to go through these clips again. This time we're going to play them one at a time. I will give you a hint before the clip. We'll play it, and then I'll move on to the next one, and then we'll see what you got. Okay. For the hint for track one, this song is the last single ever by a band that continued on with a different name and one less member. Hint for track two. Prior to this hit, the singer spent a couple years living in his parents' basement and working as an accountant, which is shocking. Track three, 
This singer was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Neil Young. The song is the opening track from his Grammy-winning 1999 album. Track four, it's been said, well, by me, that the first thing to go when a record store employee retires is their ability to impersonate the singer of this song. Track 5, these heroin-addled heroines produce several hits, including this one, which isn't a song about Santa Claus despite the misleading title. Track six. This song, known to be sung by a, by a man, was actually written by his wife. Okay, what do you got? Okay. The first one I think I got mostly from the clue, but I could kind of hear it. I think it's Level Terrace Apart by Joy Division. It is. Whew, okay. The second one, this, I think based on the clue too, I had a hard time hearing it, but I was trying to pick out like the baseline maybe. Is it Walk on the Wild Side? Yes, it is. Okay, good, good. That Those two I got. The clue helped me immensely. All right. The third one is funny because we, I, I, if I'm right, I think we both randomly put this song into our quizzes. You are right. Which is very weird out of all the <laughs> possible <laughs> songs. And it's not even like a song that I would say is one of my favorite songs by him. But I think it's Big in Japan by Tom Waits. Yes, it is. That's exactly right. That is weird, isn't it? Yep. That one... Again, I, I think I knew Neil Young inducted Tom Waits, and then I kind of went back to it, but I could hear it after I knew the song. The fourth one, I don't have a clue. I don't, the clue didn't help me at all. Okay. Listening to the song, I think it, this is a, this is a guess based on the song. Is it Roadrunner? It is not Roadrunner, Dang. but you're very close. The clue was, uh, leads to Jonathan Richmond. Oh, really? That's something that I was I said during the last episode. I think I cut it out, but it was that the first thing to go when you quit a record store is your Jonathan Richmond voice. Okay. You, you did say that. I remember. So that's not a clue that it would help anybody else because I edited that out. Sorry. Um, but the song is Government Center. Okay. The fifth song, I have no clue. I don't, okay. 
I was thinking maybe Cherry Bomb, but that doesn't make any sense. Shangri-Las. Okay. And if the song is... Footsteps on the Roof. There you go. Yep. Makes sense. The sixth song I did get based on the music alone. That, I believe, is Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Very good. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So, again, I... I like the idea of this, but I want to find a way to make them more recognizable, if possible, because then it will be fun. Otherwise, it's not fun. I think it was kind of fun with the hints. I would be interested in if anybody got them before the hints. The only one that I'm 100% confident I got before the hints is Ring of Fire. Okay, we better get out of here because we've been talking for a long time. I don't know how long this will get when it's edited, but we've literally been talking about the Velvet Underground for two hours. And this is something that we have done for eight hours working at a record store. We probably just spent the entire time talking about it. Yep. We'd do eight hours, and then we'd come back and be mad about something somebody else would say and argue it again for yep. another four hours And I think the next I've day. told you this story. I don't think I've mentioned it on the show, and I meant to mention it here at some point. When I was a little kid, and I didn't really know anything about music at the point, and maybe I still don't, but my brother came into my room and he gave me my oldest brother he gave me two tapes and he said you can like one of these you can't like both of them and so i played them and i loved the velvet underground and i still hate the doors he was right <laughs> he, he doesn't like the doors or he didn't like the doors either he was t- how old were you very very early teens if not just before teen so you you had enough sense to know the right right way to go i got lucky I've got kind of a weird story like that, too. I know, I know you don't, but how I got into the Velvet Underground, my dad had a Lou Reed CD or something, so I kind of knew a little bit about them. I got a bonus from a job I worked, a summer job I work, and I'm sure it was only like $50 or something like that. So I go to Circuit City, which is you know a big box store, but they sold CDs, and there I had two box sets in my hand, and one was the Peel Slowly and See, box set and the other was the captain beefheart like the four disc of trout mask replica oh okay okay and and i kind of like was i love trout mask replica like you know and i just it was kind of getting into the velvet underground and i said well i you know i should try something new so i got the velvet underground box set with my bonus and that is all i listened to for literally six months almost every day listen to one of the velvet underground albums that's that's great it's really Really easy to yeah. get hooked on them. It hits you right at that time, I think, because it's cool and it's still accessible, and you, but it still feels kind of dangerous. I don't know. It's perfect. Yep. Real quick disclaimer: go buy some records. Go go help a record store and a band and a cool record company. Just go spend some money. Go buy Squeeze. Why not? If you're feeling real crazy, get an Angus McLeese record. Or, or just get a record. Anyways, just, you know, as always, we want you to go out and support music, musicians, record stores, all those good things. Joe, do we have social media? We do. We have a Twitter feed. Our handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have Facebook. Very easy to find us on there. We have an email email account at Gmail called Podcast at gmail.com. And we are approaching our 50th episode. And just to let people know, we're going to plan on having some kind of giveaway of some sort at that point. So we may be having a an, an, a quiz is what we were thinking about. But if you guys have any ideas, let us know on Facebook what you'd like to do. Uh, we want or anything that you'd like to have us give you, I guess. But we'll be doing a little bit of a giveaway for the 50th episode. And we will announce more of that on the next show. 
And if you've stuck with us this long, thank you. We really, really appreciate it. We really like doing this. I mean, I, I really, you know, it's great. But I like it even more when somebody reaches out or somebody mentions us. Or, yep. I mean, it just makes it just makes it so much more fun for us. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends if you can review us on iTunes or wherever you review places that apparently helps. But but tell friends. But mostly just just thank you. Maybe when we do the giveaway, we'll also have some some other swag to to give away. Maybe you get a personalized mix. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be cool. I was, or yeah, we've got a few things in mind that might be a little different. Oh, am, I, am I blowing a surprise? No, no, no. That's, I don't think that is. I was thinking the, that we don't want to mention the 40, the customized 45 spindle. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> like it's live. <laughs> Anyways, this has been the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast. And we are signing off. We'll talk to you later. The end. Rain, 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 r